Hey, what's up, everybody? This is the greatest show on dirt coming to you live from the Sweet Bee Studios. I am your host, Quentin. And again, as always, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Hood Hat, hoodhat.com on Instagram, hoodhatusa. I'm so lucky to have Max at Hood Hat to sponsor this podcast. You know, it's like I, I don't have any other sponsors. I don't actively go for sponsors, but for Max to have, you know, faith in this podcast for his brand means a lot, you know? Because this is a podcast that started in, you know, the uh, sort of like the attic of my in-law's house like four years ago. So for somebody to have that sort of faith in you, you know, means a lot. And I think that's what a lot of, you know, baseball is in general, right? I remember when my dad taught me the game, you know, it was a lot of, you know, encouragement, you know, saying you could do this, you know, being new to anything, whether it's a game of baseball or a podcast, you know, to have that sort of encouragement, from anybody around you, and I, I'm out of breath because I've been chugging energy drinks. We'll get to this. I explain it in the podcast, but that's sort of uh, you know what baseball means to me. You know, it's beyond, it's beyond the game. It's beyond the numbers. It's beyond any hit or pitch I could ever throw in baseball, and that's what Hood Hat represents to me. You know, Max's motto. Max is the guy that runs the show at Hood Hat, and their their brand motto is never leave it behind. You know, so his. He sells hats. That's why it's called Hood Hat. And his that's his motto, never leave it behind. Because really, it's, you know, what we love about baseball most goes beyond the game. And it has to do with, you know, where we grew up, you know, like our best friends when we grew up, you know, playing sandlot ball and having sleepovers and eating Bigfoot pizzas and maybe like, you know, TP and neighbors' houses and stuff. And that's sort of what Hood Hat represents. You know, Hood Hat doesn't want you to go out and TP your neighbor, but if you want to, go for it. Just don't get caught. But it's about, you know, every hat that Max produces, you know, it doesn't have a team name on it, but it might have like the neighborhood that the baseball team played in or like Jack Murphy Stadium, you know, the park that the Padres used to play in and his hats. That's what they're about, man. They're about where we came from, you know, the moments that mattered beyond, you know, did we get a hit that day or did we throw what, you know, did we strike a few guys out that game or whatever? And it's about. It's centered around sports and culture in the neighborhoods that we came from. And I said this in an Instagram post the other day, you know, any game I've ever played, I don't remember the final score, but, you know, I remember who I was there with. I remember so many of the little things, you know, like, you know, riding to the corner shop and getting a glass Coke and, you know, a bag of Doritos, you know, putting together quarters to try to get a Bigfoot pizza on a Friday night while I'm having some buddies sleep over, you know, play Contra all night and stuff like that. And, you know, going to the ballpark for the first time, you know, seeing the bright green grass at Wrigley Field and Bush Stadium and just being in amazement, you know, and, you know, my parents doing everything they could for me growing up in that sacrifice. And that's what Hood Hat represents. So check them out. Whoever your favorite team is, Hood Hat's got a hat for you. You can go on Instagram at Hood Hat USA. Give Max a follow, man. His hats are made in New York, 100% merino wool, amazing color and craftsmanship. The first time I ever put his hat on. I was like, this guy really wants to sponsor the podcast because this is a really good hat. You know, like Theo Vaughn, you know, Theo Vaughn, the funny comedian. Yeah, he wears hood hats. Jay-Z wears hood hats. Like it's a it's a big operation. This isn't a mom and pop shop that Max runs. But at the same time, it has that feeling because he cares. So check him out. Hoodhat.com on Instagram at HoodHatUSA. That's a lot. Let's uh, let's get to the show. Thanks for tuning in. We got some good baseball on the way. Here it is. Hey, what's up, everybody? Greatest show on dirt coming to you live from the Sweet Bee Studios. I am your host, Quentin. Listen, thank you so much for tuning in. I know I sound like a broken record, but I like to start the podcast off with a thank you. Like, it's so appreciated. I feel so much love from this podcast and the Instagram and the positive comments and the baseball community I just enjoy. And I want to emphasize it has nothing to do with me and everything to do with everybody that listens to the podcast and leaves comments and shares their funny baseball stories and their meaningful baseball stories around family and friends you know, being a kid, loving the game and stuff like that. It is very, very much appreciated. So thank you for tuning in. And listen, though, let's get straight to it right now because I've got a little bit of a situation on my hands. So I started drinking a lot of these energy drinks, right? That's why I'm out of breath right now because, like, I'm so hyped up on energy drinks. Like, my heart right now is playing all the cool-ass ACDC songs for Maximum Overdrive. Like, it's just pumping right now. My heart is pumping like a Jensen 6x9 in the back of an El Camino. But I feel so energized and rejuvenated right now. Like, I feel like I could do anything, right? 
Like, I'm not making this up. Last night, I was up until 2 a.m. watching Roadhouse. When Roadhouse was over, I went in my garage and bench-pressed because I got a garage gym. And then I was outside taking dry hacks in my front yard, peeing like crazy because these energy drinks make you pee so much. And, like, that's, I'm not, I want to make it clear. Like, I don't pee in my front yard because I was hype off energy drinks. I pee in my front yard out of honor. Out of honor, I want, this is a neighborhood that I live in, and there are other houses in this neighborhood, and there are other yards in this neighborhood, right? And I have a wife, her name is Courtney, and she's very smart and intelligent, and I've got a daughter named Emmy, and this is our house on our land on a corner lot. Now, a corner lot will sort of fuck you over a little bit because people want to like, you know, if their guest is someone else's house, like they're going to park their cars on the corner, so there'll be cars in front of my house, you know, they want to park on the corner, the corner lot always gets more litter and things like that, right, like, I've almost fought kids, right, they're like these 18-year-old kids that would hang out across the street at this other kid's house, and they would blast music out in the front yard, you know, and I, I did this one time, and I was, I was drinking a little bit of whiskey, and I'm generally a decent hothead, right, and, like, all I want in my life, I always tell my wife this anytime we ever go out on like a date or if we're at a bar with friends, which doesn't happen a lot, but on the occasion that it does, like I always am like, I want someone to say something to me or my wife so I can fight him, you know, because I'm 37 years old. I haven't been in a fight since high school because, you know, I'm an adult now, right? Adults don't fight or anything like that, but I always have this vision in my head that I have to like defend the honor of my family because someone like grabs my wife's butt or they disrespect her you know and I always tell my wife like listen could I ever get in a fight to defend your honor and she's like yeah maybe you know but I don't think she really thinks it would happen but I will also probably get beat up too you know because I have constant heartburn and my hip hurts I don't really know how I would hold up in a fight which is very interesting but where the fuck was I even going with this oh man I totally lost my train of thought now this is so embarrassing welcome to 38, which I will be 38 in October, but that's, what was I talking about? Oh, I was talking about defending my front yard. That's it. Okay. So that's why I pee in my front yard because I think, you know, like these kids were playing their loud subwoofer music out front, man. It's like this kid who drives around my neighborhood. It's got like a, a Mazda Miata. Was who the fuck? Right? It has a Mazda Miata that's not like 65 with a full gray head of hair. Well, this 18-year-old kid has a Mazda Miata with probably two square kicker subwoofers in the back of it that's loud as shit. And he's loitering in front of my house one time. And so I go out there with a bottle of whiskey in my underwear and I tell the kid to get his shit and move on, man. And I felt so good because like that's something my dad would have done, you know? Like... I, I pride myself on being in my underwear all the time, you know, because like that's what my dad did. You know, if there was a ruckus outside, my dad would go outside in his underwear. He didn't care, you know, it was his yard and his territory. So when I'm outside in my front yard at 2 a.m. doing dry hacks, swinging my back, getting my stance down because I'm high as shit off bang energy drinks because I also did some bench presses and just watched Roadhouse you know that I'm going to defend my front yard and I'm going to set that tone of defense by peeing in my front yard. And if someone sees me and they see my privates while I'm peeing, they're going to know that I'm someone not to be messed with or they're going to call the police on me and I'm going to get put on the registry. I'm not too sure which happens. Like in my head, people see me pee in my front yard and they're like, damn, that must be a bad motherfucker. I saw him rip someone's throat at one time. You know, like I sort of like this Dalton-esque figure off Roadhouse. But in all reality, like it probably doesn't happen that way. You know, someone's going to catch me on their ring camera <laughs> being in my own front yard. Then the cops are going to come to my house and just get really weird. Like, you know, nothing ever works out like how it is. Like if you ever watch like, like I watch Roadhouse. Roadhouse is one of my favorite movies ever. And it's like Sam Elliott, Patrick Swayze in that movie. They're just so fucking cool. And it's like, do they ever have problems? You know, like. Dalton, like, he doesn't drink alcohol, but he's always drinking black coffee, and he's, like, seemingly never in stomach pain, you know, like, I drink black coffee all the time, and I'll shit three times a day, you know, like, I'm on my third cup of black coffee, and, like, you know I'm uncomfortable, like, I'm sweaty, I gotta take a dump, but I'm busy, so I'm holding it in, so, like, I'll walk a little, funny, you know, on the way to the bathroom, but Dalton's drinking black coffee, they don't sleep, like, they look good, he's got great hair, and I'm like, what the hell is going on right now? These are unrealistic expectations, but that's how sort of, you know, movies set the tone or whatever, so, like, I've, I gotta drink less coffee, you know, because 
like acid reflux is a real thing for me, you know, like I'll consistently wake up at 2 a.m. with killer acid reflux, just thinking philosophically, you know what I mean? Like that's what'll happen, man. If you ever want to get really deep into your thoughts, it's not mushrooms or getting high off marijuana or anything like that. It's having acid reflux at 2 a.m. and not being able to sleep. That shit will get you thinking about so much stuff. It is like an instant, you know, meditative state. Like I'll wake up at 2 a.m. and think about the other day, like I woke up at 2 a.m. and I'm thinking about this Ancient Aliens episode. I haven't watched Ancient Aliens since like 2015. And I'm like, man, do I think they really built the pyramids? Like, how did the pyramids get built? You know what I mean? Like, my microwave broke last week. It only lasted a year and a half. But there were these people hundreds of thousands of years ago that were building these pyramids. Like, I'm like, aliens are real. You know, and then I think of this one time where like I saw you know, what may have, what I believe to be a UFO over a cornfield by my house in Illinois. And I'm like, are there people watching me now? And like, are there people observing my thoughts? I'm not really too sure, you know? And then, you know, that the story that I told you about the guy that was in Verizon when I worked in Verizon, who was talking about his buddy mercenary and the government tracking him through his battery and his cell phone and stuff like that. And I'm like, trying to take out the battery on my iPhone at 2.30 a.m., and then I think of like, you know, all the times like I spent a lot of time out in the sun when I was a kid, junior high, high school, college, you know what I mean? Selling watermelons. And then I'm worried about like, am I going blind because I didn't want to wear sunglasses because I didn't want to have a tan line on the side of my head, you know, like a bass fisherman. And then it's just like, am I going to go blind? Are there aliens real? You know, all these deep thoughts in my head for acid reflux, dude. So I'm like, logic sets in and I'm like, well, I got to stop drinking I can't drink as much coffee anymore because it's acidic and it's giving me heartburn and it's making me take shits. But I can't shit three times a day. It's inconvenient for me. So I'm like, well, I'm going to try an energy drink because I was at the store the other day. What my wife and I will do is we'll take our daughter Amy to the grocery store and she loves to run around and she'll just like grab shit off the shelves and throw it. And like, you don't have to pick it up. So it's like, let her have some fun. No, my wife's, I mean, my daughter, she's not a tyrant, dude, but she loves being social and going to the grocery store and she loves getting out of the house. So we'll routinely take her. And, you know, being a parent, you know, you're listening to this. You're probably a parent. You know, this podcast is for old, old curmudgeons like me who pee in the front yard and think takeout slides should happen more often. <laughs> and so, like, we're all fucking tired, man. Like, are you tired right now listening to this podcast? Dude, like, I'm tired 24-7. I don't know what it is. But so I saw in the store an energy drink, and it, was, it said Bang on it. It was called a Bang energy drink, and it, the logo was like an American flag. And I've never been called to anything more strongly in my life. Bang energy with America's flag on it. And I'm like, I'm going to drink that real quick because that might be a little easier on my acid reflux and also my poops. So I bought it and I've been drinking them ever since. And I'm officially addicted energy drinks. I cannot stop. I buy every energy drink there is. Bang energy drink. There's an energy drink called Rowdy energy drink, a monster energy drink. They even got like a, a, a Pabst Blue Ribbon, like hardcore coffee energy drink. And I'm like, I think it has alcohol in it. I've never bought it before, but because I'm not drinking as much these days, uh, I'm taking a little bit of time off to rebuild the liver a little bit. So that's, that's happening, right? I haven't been drinking as much hams and stuff like that, you know? So yeah. But yeah, so that's pretty much my energy drink rant right now, you know, and the energy drinks got me feeling like Ultimate Warrior, but looking like Doc Holliday and Tombstone, <laughs> you know, I'm on the verge of death. But anyway, let's get to some baseball stuff right now. All right, all right, all right. Listen, let's get to the next. Let's get to the next segment. Player of the week. Here's what we're cooking up right now. Player of the week, buddy. Steve Carlton. Listen, I didn't, I don't know much about Steve Carlton. Well, I should say I didn't know much about Steve Carlton. Steve Carlton was a guy that was before my time. You know, his last Major League Baseball season was in 1988, and I was only born in 1983. So like some of you, you know, it's 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 so fun to keep digging into baseball and discover all of these old school, gritty, badass baseball players. But I can safely fucking say that I've never <laughs> just like... Steve Carlton was a wild dude, like nobody you would ever think of. Like, 
I've done, I think, two Instagram posts on Steve Carlton, and it's mostly because his pictures look so badass. Like, if you look at a picture of Steve Carlton from 1970, he looks like he drives an El Camino with a big block in it. It's got glass packs on it, or the catalytic converters are completely cut off. He, like, he's got a big mouth Billy Bass in his front room, and probably... I don't know, a six-pack of Strohs with him everywhere he goes. You know, he just looks like sort of a hillbilly dude that prefers to pee outside and doesn't care if a neighbor sees him. That's the type of guy that Steve Carlton looked like. But who he was as a person was was the, the absolute complete opposite of that. We'll get into, but okay. So let's start with Steve Carlton. One of the things that never hits me is just how good of a pitcher Steve Carlton is. So, you know, if you're around my age or younger, or really any age, really, you, you'll you always hear of pitchers from different eras that just sort of catch on in mainstream. You know, there are people, there are kids that probably never saw Tony Gwynn hit because maybe they weren't born until like 1990-something. But, like, that's that's a guy that I'm old enough to remember, right? I, I remember the chase for 400 in 1994. Like, Tony Gwynn was very much playing in my age. His first season was in 1982, but, you know, by the time 80, 88, 89, 90 swung around, like, I was watching baseball, right? So, I, I, Tony Gwynn's like that guy. But Tony Gwynn is, is a name that's timeless. So, you could be born in any era after and just know that Tony Gwynn was a good hitter and have respect for him because his his greatness precedes him. Like, he's just so good, and we all know it. But Steve Carlton, I think a lot of times, isn't mentioned in greatest pitchers of all time. You, you, you'll get guys, you know, Randy Johnson, Roger Clemens, Nolan Ryan, Sandy Koufax. Yeah, all those guys are really fucking good. Bob Gibson, right? Bob Gibson, the scariest human being in the history of existence. Like, I feel like the brand No Fear and all the No Fear t-shirts may have been modeled after Bob Gibson and his intimidating presence on the mound. I know I had that No Fear shirt when I was a kid that said, like, I will destroy you and eat you if I have to. Like, I think that was modeled after Bob Gibson. That fucking guy was scarier than the diesel green goblin truck off Maximum Overdrive. Like, what a scary guy. And that's who Steve Carlton looked up to because when Steve Carlton came into the league, he was a St. Louis Cardinal. And that's something that, hell, I don't think I realized until a year, a year and a half ago, that I think the Cardinals won a World Series like in... 68 or 69 and he was on that team and I think he even had a start like a six inning start in that World Series so he was a World Series winner well before you know the Phillies won in 1980 and I mentioned Bob Gibson because Bob Gibson was that guy that Steve Carlton looked up to now when Steve Carlton was young he was a pretty brash confident guy but to be in the same dugout as Bob Gibson like Steve Carlton was like, I want to be like Bob Gibson. Like, Steve even set a goal for himself to be devoid of all emotion. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, did he sign a deal with the devil? Like, he's, like, willing to be possessed by a demon to, like, pitch really good. Like, that's, you know that you're a hell of a determined athlete when your main goal is to be devoid of all emotion. Like, that's, like, some Terminator T-1000 shit, man. Like, that's just... I mean, that's like some American psycho stuff, right? And so, like, but that's what he saw in Bob Gibson, right? You had this intimidating mound presence, and that was sort of what Steve Carlton, you know, wanted to model himself after was Bob Gibson. And, I mean, dude, the pitcher, man. I mean, when was Bob Gibson's, when was that season? Was it, like, in 69 or something? He had, like, a 1.12 ERA, and they had to fix the mound. Like, what kind of pitcher is so damn good where the league's, like, well, we got to change the fucking rules for this guy. <laughs> like, he's too damn good, right? But to know who Steve Carlton is as a human being, you have to start with Steve Carlton, the youngster. Okay, so you know when Bo Jackson was a kid, and there are all of these just Paul Bunyan-esque stories of Bo Jackson. Listen, you know I'm a huge fan of Bo's ESPN 30 for 30. <laughs> like, And there's it goes into detail 
about like all these wild stories of what Bo Jackson was sort of like as a kid and these these wild physical things he did, like, you know, jumping over a Volkswagen. He killed the neighbor's boars with rocks. He would throw rocks through like the screen doors of houses, like when they would have like these rock fights and he would do it from like, you know, 100 feet out, like Mel Gibson and Lethal Weapon just gun, trying to gun Joshua, you know, Mr. Joshua on the plane, which I'm going to get into later. Well, hold on. Let's keep my train of thought. It's the energy drinks that are fucking with me right now. But what I'm getting at is they're just Bo Jackson was a, was a freak from the time he was a born a freak athlete, right? And there are stories that are like that with Steve Carlton, but I, I think they're just as cool as Bo Jackson, but there's like a little bit of a hint of like, I kill animals and I might turn into the next Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> I'm not really sure. And it's it's really good, right? So check this out. So this one time, Steve Carlton, um, he was born and raised in Florida, I think. So he's in the Everglades hunting, and he was rabbit hunting. He's probably like nine years old, right? And he's got a rifle with him because that's how it was when we were kids, you know? Like, it was nothing to be a kid and just have weapons on us, you know? We would have M80s, which in, like, 1985 was basically fucking dynamite, you know? Like, there was no, like, wear a helmet when you ride a bike. It was like, a, a what? A, why would I wear a helmet riding a bicycle? It doesn't make any sense, Right. We didn't wear seatbelts. I don't think I was in a car seat after the age of two. So it's like, yeah, Steve Carlton had a rifle when he was nine. And he's out rabbit hunting. And his rifle gets jammed. So he's like, what the hell? And there's like a rabbit like 90 feet away. And so Steve, old lefty, grabs a rock, launches it at the rabbit, hits it in the head, kills it, dead. So his rifle had jammed, but he threw a rock and he killed a rabbit. Now, I know it's not a boar. But, hey, it's a rabbit and it'll do, right? But there was another time, it's like he was quail hunting as well because he will hunt a lot, like I said. And I don't know if his rifle jammed again or if he was just like a pure psychopath. But he would because I guess he would like also like pick birds off that were like sitting on the power line with rocks and just knock them down, down, down. But this one time he had his eye on a quail. And he had an axe in his hand, right? Which, again, you know, we had axes and hatchets and stuff. Do you ever think about how we're alive to these days? Like, I was born in 83. And if you were born, like, in the 80s or before, like, it's amazing that we're still alive and have all of our limbs. Like, we would have, like, I remember having a couple hatchets and a bowie knife, you know? It's like, it, it was almost like, as kids, we had all of the artillery and ammunition and weaponry that, like, they use on The Walking Dead, <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, we were prepared for the zombie apocalypse before the age of 10, you know? And so, like, yeah, Steve Carlton's got an axe. And he throws this axe at a quail and cuts its head clean off. Clean off. And so that's where I'm like, that's a little Jeffrey Dahmer-esque. But it's also, like, pretty, you know, pretty wild. Because this guy who turned into one of the greatest left-hand pitchers all the time could kill rabbits from 90 yards out. And, you know, 90 feet out and then throw axes, axe throwing and just chop a quail's head clean off, you know. And so I don't know whether to be alarmed or impressed by that, you know, which is sort of Steve Carlton as a whole because he was is he's still alive because Steve Carlton was just so damn wild. Like you don't really it's hard to determine if we should be impressed by him or scared of him, you know? Because it's like, oh, shit, like, he did what to the quail's head? Like, damn, man, he couldn't have shot it or something, you know? But, hey, you know, I digress. So here we go, though. And then so that's sort of, like, Steve Carlton as a human being has or has always just been, like, on a different level. So when he was with the Phillies, well, really— when he, by the time he got to like junior high and high school, he was really into Eastern philosophy and meditation. And he felt like that anything could be accomplished through focus, like a singular focus, which totally makes sense. Like I'll have my best days as, you know, a husband and a dad and just, you know, getting stuff done when I focus on one thing and I'm not trying to multitask with like the podcast and work and stuff like that. You know, being focused allows you to be fully in the moment. That's why I'll like, you know, make it a point to put my phone down when I'm hanging out with my wife and my daughter because like the moment just becomes so much more joyful. And so that's that's what Steve Carlton really got into Eastern philosophy for was like that that focus, right? That's what he would do. And when he was on the Phillies, he the Phillies built 
They spent $15,000 and built him a soundproof meditation room. And Steve would go in there for like four hours at a time and just stare at a painting. Like, like, like he may have been a Terminator, like a, like a pure psychopath. Like, you know, the guy on Predator who like, he's the real badass dude. I forget his name. And he like cuts himself across his chest. And he's like, he tells Arnold, he goes, we're all going to die. Like that is sort of who I envision like Steve Carlton being. So you see like there's just all these wild dimensions to Steve Carlton. Like he cuts a rabbit's head off or like he cuts a quail's head off, but he's into Asian philosophy and all about focus. So he has a soundproof room built, right? But check this out. Like it gets even wilder. So Steve Carlton was like, so here's what happened. So Steve in the off season of, I think, 68, I believe that's when it was. Steve Carlton went to Japan to play ball. And the Japan, the Japanese Hank Aaron, his name is like Sadaru O or something like that, hit like 900 home runs, like an absolute savage of a home run hitter. Well, when Steve Carlton went to Japan to pitch, he started throwing a slider because I think Bob Gibson threw a slider as well. I, I could be totally mistaken on that. Again, these are pitchers that are before my time, so I'm just digging into them. And he discovered in Japan, he's like, yo, this slider is getting guys out because I just struck out Sadaru O, and I could be pronouncing his name wrong. My apologies. No disrespect intended. I'll have to research him, and he could be a player profile another day. He uh, had good luck against, you know, striking this guy out on the slider, so he started throwing the slider the next season. Lights out, dude. Had a phenomenal 69. I think the Cubs, you know, I mean, the Cardinals won a World Series in 69, like I said, and he had, by the time, before he left St. Louis, he had sort of abandoned the slider because... St. Louis had traded him away around the same time they got rid of Kurt Flood because, I don't know, I guess it was like Gussie Bush at the time that owned the team. He was just super pissed at all these guys for asking for more money. He was like, well, screw you, I run the ship, get the hell out of here. And so when he went to Philly, he still wasn't abandoning him. He was still abandoning his slider because he had pitching coaches tell him, they were like, bro, Steve, like, stop throwing your slider because we think it's going to affect your curveball and that could be bad for you in the long term. So he's like, okay. So we banned on the slider for a while, and then 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 came back around to the slider, and that's you know what Steve Carlton's known for is the slider. But during the time where he was sort of struggling, he all of a sudden started getting letters from this guy. I wrote his name down from this guy named Briggs, I think. Yep, I found it. So the guy's name was Briggs, and he was a night watchman, right? And that's what it was. And we don't even know if Briggs was his real name, but that's what it was. This night watchman who was known to people. As Briggs. Now, you know that you're like an important, wild sort of like enigma if you're like, like people don't even know what your name is, but it's like he was known to people as Briggs. Like when I was in high school, I was known to people as Q Dog, and that made me feel pretty important. So that's sort of what Briggs was. Now, during the 1970 season, that's what happened. Carlton, he was getting about five letters a week from Briggs. And Briggs was telling him, he's like, listen, like, you, you're not concentrating on the mound. Like, you were, um, you know, your concentration's off. And that sort of leaned back to what? And who, this is just some random guy, by the way, right? Could you imagine in 2021 if you started getting random letters from a person who was known as, you know, whatever their name was, like, known as Briggs? Like, what if I started getting letters every week from my house from someone I had never met? They were like letters from this dude known as Billy, you know, that would be weird, or like known as Hook, like that's a scary name, right, known as Mercenary, you know, like I didn't even know this person's name, like I would call the law real fast and be like, what the fuck is happening, and then I would like pee in my yard from dusk till dawn to establish my territory, I guess, I don't really know, And but that's what happened, and people were like, yo, Steve, this is weird, man. Like, you got some random dude sending you letters. Like, do you feel safe? And so people were, like, really, like, worried that this could be dangerous. But Steve's like, no, this isn't strange to me at all. You know, Briggs, he's a spiritual guide who understands, you know, how the mind should work. That's what he was like. So Steve didn't think it was weird at all, which is crazy. I mean, it's not crazy because I know that. If if Steve Steve Carlton right now probably sits at his house and watches, you know, ancient aliens on repeat and just eats fucking meatloaf, man. You know, like he doesn't even leave his house for like weeks at a time. So 
of course this isn't weird to Steve Carlton, right? He cut a quail's head off. <laughs> like, we're cool. And so these these letters really helped him out a lot. And so he had his first 20-win season in 1971, and he was still a Cardinal that year. So, like, things had sort of turned around for him. And, again, like, that's sort of what you get, you know, with a guy like Steve Carlton is, uh, you know, he's just out there. And, uh, I mean, he might be mailing letters to people now, and he would be like, you know, the letters are really from Steve Carlton, but it's just, you know, from someone, you know, known as, you know, Hook or whatever, you know, a cool name might be like Rowdy, you know, like off off Days of Thunder. Like Rowdy's a really cool name, you know. So if I started getting letters from some guy named Notice Rowdy who was telling me, you know, some secret philosophy stuff, I might, you know, think it's like a secret society that I might want to be a part of, you know, like I don't want to be in a cult. But like, you know, I've watched a decent amount of ancient aliens and a lot of that stuff where like, you know, maybe the Freemasons would invite me in. And I would just like had to get a tattoo of like a, a a weird devilish star on my chest and you know say a few chants or something. I don't know what I don't know if that would bring me wealth and health or not. I'm not too sure. But if I got to see some aliens and maybe Bigfoot out of it, that would be a pretty cool situation. Okay, but listen, as cool and wild of a dude that Steve Carlton was, <laughs> he was really good. So it would be bad if we didn't talk about like the amazing things he did on the mound. Okay, first and foremost. Steve Carlton was the first guy to strike out 19 dudes in a nine-inning game. Now, Luis Tiant had did it once before, and I think that was uh, maybe the game. No, Luis Tiant did it in 68, so he struck out 19 guys in 10 innings and faced 36 batters. But So Steve was the first guy to do it in 69, and Tom Seaver was the second guy to do it in 70. We struck out 19 dudes. And well, that was in 69, so his slider was really banging. You know, by this point, you know, Briggs had been sending him some pretty good letters. So 19 strikeouts, man. You could say Briggs is a weirdo, right? The guy known as Briggs, who's a night watchman, but that motherfucker knew what was up because he's because Steve Carlton struck out 19 dudes. Pretty amazing situation. But now I'm going to say this, and this might be a little bold. There have been a lot of great pitching performances in the history of the game seasons as far as a whole season is concerned like Greg Maddox had some phenomenal seasons I think the the greatest pitching season that gets talked about the most is Pedro Martinez and his pitching season from the year 2000 so at the height of the steroid era while all of us you know just shortly after all of us were you know storing jugs of fresh water and, you know, buying MREs from the mall from, like, the end of times people. <laughs> and because Y2K was about to happen. So, you know, I didn't know if I was going to be able to burn another CD ever again. Like, if I had Bone Thugs and Harmony and Skilo and Coolio Gangster's Paradise on cassette and I scratched the CD when I had burned it, if the year 2000 hits, will I never be able to burn another CD again? There were a lot of concerns, right, in 1990. And I think about that for a second. We thought the world was going to shut down. I swear to God, I was helping my buddy's grandma put jugs of fresh water. Do we have meals prepped? I was ready to eat Vienna sausages for the next 15 years, right? And Y2K never happened. And I still ate Vienna sausages for the next 15 years. Vienna, Vienna, I call them both. Listen to me, though, right now. The Pedro Martinez season in 2000 was a wild one. At the height of the steroid era, he threw 217 innings with a buck 74 ERA. It, it was a bonker season. He won the Cy Young. He was almost unhittable. His whip was .7. Bro, dude, I think, like, the ball boys were probably on trend below. Like, it was the fucking Wild West in the year 2000 for Major League Baseball. Everybody was jacked, dude. Like, hell, in 01, Luis Gonzalez, skinny Luis Gonzalez hit, like, 57 home runs. Like, that's crazy, dude. Like, that's a pretty wild deal. And the 2000 Boston Red Sox, they won 85 ball games, and they were second in the AL East, a very stacked AL East. Of course they were second because the New York Yankees were at the height of their dominance winning like four World Series in five years or whatever it was, right? But the most – I don't know why. I get why Pedro seasons by the maybe could be the greatest ever and gets talked about so much because the steroid era was more recent. A lot of us hold it with contempt and hatred or fondness, but whatever your opinion is on the steroid air, you can look at what Pedro Martinez did and say, holy crap, that was a wild season. And for, for a good Boston Red Sox team. But Steve Carlton in 
1972, I think. Oh, gosh, I got to look this up. I apologize. This is not a professional podcast. I tell, I, as soon as my daughter gets old enough, I'm going to put her as a producer on the show. I'm not going to give her a penny. <laughs> you know, no, I would. I would totally pay my daughter. That's what I tell my wife. I said, my daughter gets like five or six. I'm going to have her be a producer on the show so she can give me these numbers. So in times when I don't know what's happening, she can say, yeah, dad, it was 1972. Just take another Nexium for your acid reflux and shut up. So in 1972, this is the Steve Carlton season I want to talk about. So in 1972, Steve Carlton had a whip of 0.9. I led with that number because I just told you that Pedro had a whip of 0.7. Pedro's way more impressive, obviously. They both won the Cy Young that year. So Steve Carlton got the Cy Young in 1972. He was 27 and 10. I think Pedro won 18 games. But I don't really care about the wins or losses total because that number has changed so much. But 27 wins in 1972... 1972 was Steve's first season in Philadelphia, and he was throwing the slider, and he had a big-ass grudge, man, because he was pissed that St. Louis dealt him. He felt betrayed, you know, because he had tried so hard and done so well for them. And so when he came to Philly in 72, Steve goes, I'm going to win 25 games and show him what's up. Well, he won 27, had a buck 97 ERA over 346 innings, threw 30 complete games. Now, back in the 70s, like, yeah, throwing, you know, 30 complete games, that might not sound impressive to you because that's all people did in the 70s and 80s and 60s and was just throw complete games, but they didn't throw 30 fucking complete games. Like, they would maybe throw, like, 15 or 20, 30 complete games? That's crazy. Like, that's crazy, okay? And it's just nuts, man. Like, if he was on the bump, he was going. And that was his first and only season where he had struck out 300 dudes. 300 strikeouts was a big deal. I know we're in an age where guys strike out a lot of dudes. And striking out 300 guys is still huge right now. But doing it in 1972, dude, like, he may have been, like, at that point, I bet only a handful of guys had struck out 300 dudes. And they were having to throw, you know, 346 innings to do so. So, like, that makes it not impressive, but also makes it so impressive. But guys, you would have to throw all these games and all these innings to get the job done. Now, what's crazy about this 1972 season, again, Steve Carlton went 27 and 10. The Philadelphia Phillies won 59 games in 1972. So Pedro Martinez won 18 games for an 85 win Boston Red Sox team. That's appropriate. How are you going to be on a 59 win team and win 27 games and win the Cy Young? Like that is to me needs to be talked about more as the most impressive pitching season ever. I get that his ERA wasn't as low as Pedro's and wasn't as low as like Bob Gibson's before they changed the mound and all of that sort of stuff. Like, so Pedro's ERA was a buck 74 and his ERA plus for, if you're an advanced data guy out there, that ERA plus will tell you from a flatline 100, how much better you are than other pitchers in the league. So if, if the baseline is a hundred, and Pedro Martinez has a 291 ERA plus. That means he was 191% better than the average pitcher in the league. Steve Carlton was only at 182, which means he was only 82% better. So I get those advanced data numbers. And even if you include whip and like sort of an advanced data number because it's not ERA and wins and losses, that Pedro Martinez had a way better season than what Steve Carlton did. But to win 27 games for a 59-win club, it's, it's out of this control. Like, it's out of this world. Like, to be able to perform at that high level and keep your mind right, you know, when I talk about singular focus, which is what Steve Carlton was all about as a major league pitcher, and I'm getting serious now. I'm not talking about Briggs and him cutting the heads off quails or any of that shit, right? This is the serious stuff. The greatest athletes are all about focus. Larry Bird said when it would get in the fourth quarter and it was a close game, he would like get tunnel vision because he would be solely focused on playing the game. He's not paying attention to the crowd or if he's injured, he's not nervous that they're going to lose. He's not like, it doesn't matter like if his other teammates want the ball or not. He's like solely focused on getting the job done. And focus is the name of the game. Now, if you're playing for a team, that's that bad and cannot win, I don't know how you keep that focus. Like, I'm sorry, like Steve Carlton's 1972 season is sort of like when Michael Jordan was really young in the league. Like if you watch The Last Dance where uh, Michael Jordan was hurt and he came back early from that injury because he wanted the Bulls to make the postseason and Jerry Krause and all those guys were like, 
fuck it, you're not going to play because one, the doctor's not going to let you play. If the doctor's not going to let you play, we're not letting you off this on this floor. And two, we want a higher draft pick. Michael Jordan looks at him and goes, buddy, that's not how competition works, right? If I'm playing and I'm healthy, I'm here to win. That is a crazy concept, man, because if your team sucks, like we're all human beings, right? We're like, if things aren't looking good, and like if we're like on a daily basis, I'm like trying to get in shape and work out and stuff. But like if I look in the mirror and I don't look good, it feels like such a daunting task. I'm like not going to go in the garage gym and work out. Like I'm going to go eat a whole box of cookie crisp and some tasty cake pecan swirls. That is how I work. Now in Michael Jordan's season when he was hurt for like a, a Chicago Bulls team that was 10 games under 500 and made the postseason only to go up against the heralded renowned Boston Celtics team that beat them like in five or six games, which is really impressive for the Bulls to push it that long. Mike could have easily stayed at home and been like, I'm going to eat cookie crisp and pecan swirls and I'll come back next year because I'm sort of hurt and we're not going to beat the Celtics. So who cares, right? Yo, no, Mike don't work like that, pal. And guess who's just like Michael Jordan in that sense? Steve Carlton, buddy. He went out 346 innings, started 41 games, and finished 30 of them. He could have been, he could have mailed it in and been like, bro, our team's not going to make the postseason. I can come out here and pitch my ass off, and it's not going to make a difference, right? Just like the situation Jordan was in with the Celtics on a young Bulls team with this young rookie. But what did Jordan and what did Steve Carlton do? They said, no, that's not how competition works. And they went out there and played their ass off every single game because they were focused on the win. They didn't care about the other shit. They didn't care about what their team was like as a whole or that these opponents were going to bash them at the end of the season when it counted or, you know, to get into the postseason or whatever. Like, they didn't matter, man. If Steve Carlton said, if I've got the ball, I'm going to do my best to win. I don't give a shit. If we're not going to make the postseason or, you know, the the three days between, you know, now and my next start, we could lose all three of them. Like, I don't care because I'm about this team. And damn it, man, that's what Steve Carlton did. So when you talk about greatest pitching seasons, pal, I can look at Steve Carlton's 1972 season, just say the Phillies won 59 games and you, from a pitching record, had 27 wins on a 59-win team. Buddy, you can give me the advanced data all you want, and I'll respect it in a certain sense, man. But when it comes to the heart of a champion and somebody who will perform and have that singular focus and put their body on the line when seemingly it's crazy, like, why are you doing that? Right? They told Michael Jordan that, buddy, you come back now to get the Bulls into the postseason. One, you're going to lose to the Celtics, so it doesn't really matter. And two, you're coming back early, so you're risking another injury. Mike said, I don't care. I'll play now because I believe I can do it. And Steve Carlton, he threw 346 innings in 1972 for a 59-win Phillies team. Buddy, he only threw over 300 innings one more time in his career. He had a 197 ERA. Never again did he have an ERA below two. And he only had a few seasons with an ERA in the twos. Never again had 300 strikeouts. The season after 1972, the season I'm talking about, 27 wins, a buck 97 ERA, 346 innings. The next year, he only threw only he only threw 293 innings. That's about 50 innings lower. Went from a 197 ERA to a 390. His ERA plus was 182 in 1972. It was 97 in 1973. The year after this amazing 1972 season and 1973, statistically, he was an average pitcher. You want to know why? Because he put his body on the line. He didn't give a shit, man. It was about competition. And there's a beauty in competition. You put your body on the line, and it's about today, man. And that competition, like, that's what Steve Carlton was. He was a competitor, right? The funny stuff with Briggs and cutting heads off of animals and having the meditation, that stuff's funny because this is a funny podcast, right? I like to have fun on it. But when you talk about a fucking competitor right now, Steve Carlton, man, that 1972 season is representative of who he was as a human, man. He put his body on the line, focused on the win every fucking time he had the ball, and that's what he did. So there are great pitching seasons out there. Greg Maddox, Nolan Ryan striking out over 300 guys in his 40s. Pedro Martinez, the stuff that Jacob deGrom does on a daily basis, but the focus and the courage and the dedication, putting his body on the line, like what Steve Carlton did, buddy, that's an elite, that's an elite athlete right there. All right, listen, let's get to our next and last segment, the 1994 MLB strike. 
Hey, one of the things I've been interested in a lot lately is the 1994 strike. Now, I think maybe at some point on this podcast, I've talked about the strike. And oh, by the way, like I think I just hit 150 episodes of this podcast a few episodes ago. Obviously, to everyone's chagrin and annoyance, I don't name or, or no, I name my podcast. I don't number them. So apparently, that's a thing you're supposed to do in the podcast world. I don't fucking know, but I haven't numbered any of them. But I'm going to say like two episodes ago, I hit 150. So thanks for listening if you listen to it because you've probably listened to God help you if you've listened to 150 of them. Jesus Christ, I never thought about that. I should give people prizes if they've listened to 150 of these awful podcast episodes, but to put it back on track. So the 1994 strike to me is one of the, listen, when I look back at the strike now, like I don't get mad. And I think there are fans that do because, and rightly so, like I respect a fan that's still mad about the 1994 strike. But when it happened, I was, I mean, shoot, I was 11 years old. Like, I don't, when the strike happened, like, I remember when it happened, but I don't remember feeling sad or upset because, so the strike, the last Major League Baseball game in 1994 was August 11th. Now, at that point, I might have been, school may have started already, and, like, I do know this, during the summertime, like, I would watch a decent amount of baseball games on WGN and TBS and then get down on Sports Center and stuff like that. But when the so like that was a big deal. So baseball was huge in the summertime, but also like I didn't watch a ton of TV growing up, you know, like the old like one of my buddies asked me this the other day. He's like, "What cartoons did you watch growing up?" And I'm like, "Dude, like Ninja Turtles? I'm wanting to say that's the only cartoon I remember watching growing up was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because like and my mom told me this the other day because I asked her, I was like, listen, what did I like watch on TV when I was a kid? And she goes, you really didn't watch much. You guys were outside all the time. And so it was like when baseball was gone, you know, school would have already started. And during the school year, I wasn't watching a lot of TV at all because, you know, we would get out of school at 2, 2.45. And then after that, it was like we would go outside and play until it got dark because at that point you started to get into August and, you know, the daylight hours are starting to shrink. And then after that, you have to do homework. So I wasn't affected by it at all. When baseball ended in 94, like, I don't remember noticing that it was gone because apparently, and I remember it that way too, like, I just didn't watch much TV, you know? Like, I bet, like, I would watch games on TBS and WGN and I would go to my grandpa's, you know, some during the summer. It wasn't like I would go over there every day. But I bet, I can twice, maybe Two games whole all summer I would watch front to back at my grandpa's because otherwise like we just as kids like we never sat still like I cared more about my bike than anything and if it was like when I look back on my summer days it was like the things I enjoyed the most were like riding my bike and actually going to play baseball so it was and I had my favorite players on like TBS and WGN and stuff like those were my guys like McGriff, Justice, and then you get into like Schwan Dunstan, Brian Sandberg, Mark Grace, you know, guys like that. So like I had favorite players and stuff, but mostly like we just were outside all the time. So when the strike happened, like, I just don't think I gave a shit. Like, I don't think it mattered, you know, but I understand like folks that are older, like maybe even my brother who was born in 79, you know, has more of a memory of the baseball strike happening and it just sucking ass and feeling like shit because like, you know, you could wrap your head around like the greed, however you interpreted it, whether it's the owners or the players or both or whatever. And being hurt by the game, not being so much of a game as a business. Well, I was young enough to where like the game was still a game. And, you know, me having a good day in the summertime was not predicated on baseball, Major League Baseball playing or not, because I had my bat and I had my bike and like I didn't care. So now it's like when I look back at the 1994 strike, it's very interesting to me. Like, I like to research up on it, and I like to hear about it. And when I think about it, like, I think about it with pleasant feelings because it's, you know, the storyline of, like, would Tony Gwynn have batted 400 and he ends the season at 394? Like, I think that's one of the best baseball stories ever. Like, you know, sometimes I wonder if that season had been fulfilled and there had never been a strike, if we would, 
look back at, at 1994 with that same reverence. You know, yeah, it does suck, though, that like the Expos couldn't get to the postseason and make it run into World Series. But, you know, because like something like that didn't happen, are we able to look back on the Montreal Expos with more like with more nostalgia, with with more what if, like with more intrigue? Like to me, like the Expos are like Toys R Us, like they're sort of this cult classic. And I think the Expos will come back in Major League Baseball. I think it'll happen. I don't know when. And the thing is, like the Expos could have won the World Series, but. I mean, probably not. Like, how many seasons does the favorite to win the World Series actually win the World Series? Like, well, I don't, that actually, <laughs> shit, man, that might happen more than not. Because, like, in 2016, I think the Cubs were everybody's favorite to win the World Series. But you know how many years the Cubs had been the favorites to, like, Jesus, man. Like, there was so much talk year after year. Like, this might be the year. Like, I remember the, what was it? It was the 08 season which was a, a, a crazy, hold on, let me think about this. It was, yeah, 2008. So the Cubs 08 team, dude, they were good, man. And they had the best record, I think, in baseball, one of the best pitching staffs. Ted Lilly was on that team. Dude, I think Zambrano was still on the team. And so the Cubs get in the divisional series, and they're playing the Dodgers. Now, the Dodgers had just got Manny Ramirez, and that guy was hitting like crazy, dude. And that year, man, was like, this is it, dude. Like, I felt it in my heart, and they just sucked. So it was like, I guess what I'm getting at is it. it's not often that the best team wins the World Series because there's so much that winning a World Series, I think, is harder than winning the Super Bowl, and it's harder than winning the NBA Finals. So it's like... I, I doubt I doubt that the Expos actually would have won the World Series, but they very likely could have because they were the best team in baseball. So what I'm getting at is the what-if story of 1994 is so damn good. And that season's probably better because it couldn't be finished. Now, don't tell that to an Expos fan, but that season, yeah, it could have saved the Expos as a franchise, but maybe it doesn't, you know? And so it's like, because that happened to the Expos, now the Expos are like this really interesting, like meaningful team that we want back where, you know, you want something more when you can't have it. And the Montreal Expos story, when, because I believe it'll happen, when they come back to Major League Baseball and become a team again, maybe they're really good and maybe the fan base explodes because it's something that was here, and then it was taken away, and then now it's back. And that Montreal Expos story might be better because of everything that happened. And it's sort of like that with Tony Gwynn's 400 season. It's like, yeah, he batted 394, but do I... If that season had finished and Tony Gwynn bats 400, do I... Have do I like Tony Gwynn more? Do I have more respect for Tony Gwynn more? Because in my head, he hits 400 if that season happens, and I know that, <laughs> right? Like, I know that. Like, I'm over here saying I don't know if the Expos will win the World Series, but I'm ready to say that Tony Gwynn bats for over 400. And so, it's like, I don't know if, as fans, is if, if we do we look at Tony Gwynn any different because he didn't bat 400 that season. Where, like, if he did, it's like we would have maybe liked him more or felt better about it. Like, I think we all think that Tony Gwynn deserved to make a run at 400. And he was batting better as the season goes on. And, like, that was Gwynn's peak year. So, it's like, I think because it didn't happen, I think we like Gwynn more. And I think we believe he would have hit 400 more because he didn't get that chance and because he was such a likable guy. So, what if... Tony Gwynn batting 394 and not getting the full chance at it actually is better for our Tony Gwynn fandom because we're like, you guys took that away from Gwynn. He would have batted 400. So it's like we have the reverence and the respect and the joy that he would have batted 400, but he didn't actually bat 400. But to us, it like sort of doesn't mean anything because in our hearts, he would have batted 400, and it was taken away from him. So we like, we love Tony Gwynn even more now that he didn't get the chance to bat 400. So in the grand scheme of things, it, you know, it's different for the man because he actually never hit 400. 
But as a fan and how we feel about Tony Gwynn, I think we love him even more that it didn't happen. Because we all believe that it would have been because he was just such a damn good guy and didn't get the chance to, right? It's like when, you know, there was, so my wife is this huge Adele fan. And Adele was performing like three or four years ago at the Grammys or something. And she messed up her lines on stage and was like sort of like sad and embarrassed, but like kept going. And in that moment, everyone loved her even more. And because she was like this human being who was trying hard and because she faltered, we had this love and empathy for her. And it like even increased her legend and her likability and like people loved her more. And I feel like it's sort of like that with Tony Gwynn because he didn't get the chance. And so we feel for him because, you know, we have hardships as normal non-baseball playing human beings on a daily basis where we look at Gwynn and we're like, dude, I feel for him. And then all of a sudden, his legend grows even more. And I think that's a lot with a lot of the players in 94, that their legend was able to grow even more because of this amazing what-if story. But in this 1994 season, okay, so I want to talk about the home run race. It's And I love a good home run race. Like, that was, and listen, I know that I've talked about this so damn much on this podcast, but the Sports Center days... 30-minute episodes, you would turn on the TV. It was all about the home run chase, the chase for 400, and 1994 was that pinnacle season. So you had Matt Williams. He finished the season with 43 homers, and there's always the conversation of would Matt Williams have broken the record? Would he have broke Roger Maris's record? And he led the league in home runs. And (laughs) here's the thing about it. That conversation always goes to Matt Williams, But there were three other guys behind Matt Williams that were hitting way better than Matt Williams. And namely, okay, so Griffey was second. Griffey hit 40 home runs that year. And Griffey was only 24 years old. Now, Griffey was a prime. This was like in the middle of Ken Griffey Jr.'s peak. Okay, so I'm so here's you know how I talked about Tony Gwynn's peak was this 1994 season. Listen, Griffey was in his peak in 1994. So he hit four, the 40 home runs in 94 and 95. Now 95 was a shortened season too because they didn't start till late. So in 95, Griffey also got hurt. I think so. He only had he only played 72 games in 95. Had 17 home runs. And then you got into 96, 97, and 98 with Griffey. Griffey missed some games in 96, still hit 49 homers. And then in 97 and 98, he had his pinnacle, 56 homers, 140-plus ribbies, and was batting over 300. This was Griffey's peak. So when you talk about the 1994 home run race, and it's always like, would Matt Williams have done it? Griffey was in his prime. Like, these were the seasons. This was the bundle of seasons where he was hitting the most home runs and hitting for average. And on top of that, he was, he had a little bit, Griffey had a little bit of a second half drop off. So, in the first half of that season of 94, he batted 329 and had 33 home runs at the All Star break. 24 games into the second half, he was still batting 302. July and August, he batted 333. So Griffey was staying hot and had four homers in 10 games in August. So Griffey had just as good of a chance as Matt Williams did to break that home run record because he wasn't really, you know, slumping. He was hitting, you know, he was staying strong and healthy through the dog days of summer, which he was only 24 years old. So like he had that sort of energy, right? Like me at 37, dude, like I'm one, I I was helping a buddy move yesterday and a couch, I was holding a couch up and like the other person sort of like rolled the couch while I had it lift up. And I thought I was going to break my elbow. Like I was, things were creaking. I don't know what was happening. Either way, what I'm saying is like, yeah, this will be a cut. Fuck. <laughs> 14 minutes. It is, what the fuck? Like, so Griffey was 24. Like, he was still young. Like, he didn't get out of breath while eating powdered donuts, right? Because he didn't eat powdered donuts. So it's like, dude, he was good. He was in his prime. And so, and Matt Williams was 28. But I mean, Griffey just, I mean, a freak athlete, dude. Like, that was the thing. So, that there's so much intrigue to the 1994 season that's beyond Matt Williams breaking Roger Maris's record. But you know, Matt Williams was such that good story because, like, you know, like I 
as when as a kid, it always felt like every year there was like a new guy that was hitting home runs. And so I always thought that was very interesting. Like I remember Brady Anderson hit his 50 and it was just like, dude, this is awesome. And you would always see that too because, you know, when we would look on the back of baseball cards, you could always see like a guy would have a peak season and just hit like a ton of home runs. And this was it for Matt Williams. Like he was so much like Roger Maris because he wasn't like this. He could hit home runs. He was a third baseman, but he wasn't like, you know, Griffey Jr. or Frank Thomas or like, you know, these guys that could just slug homers year after year. But he was just having like the year where he was on. And it's so funny because Matt Williams, he's sort of like a self-deprecating guy. And I'll try to find an interview of it because they're probably out there. But when Matt would when Matt would talk about the 1994 season, even during the 1994 season, he made it just out to be like dumb luck that he was hitting all these home runs. Where he's like, I don't know, man, I'm not a good hitter, but like I swing the bat and they go over the fence. Like I don't know what was happening. It's like he was just <laughs> he was fucking confused. He's like, I have no idea how I'm hitting all of these home runs. And so it was just like he was that like standout guy this season that was just doing these wild things. And so like it was pretty cool to see that because it was a little bit of parallel there between him and Roger Maris where all of a sudden Roger Maris is just pounding home runs. But one of the craziest, listen, in that, where we at here, Jeff Bagwell had 39 home runs in 1994. So he was third. So he had Matt Williams at 43, Junior Griffey at 40. And then Jeff Bagwell at 39. Jeff Bagwell is the guy that may have very well broken the home run record if the season is able to be finished. So Jeff Bagwell won the MVP in 1994. I think it was the only one he ever won. And his season was completely bonkers. Okay, he was so... He batted... Gwen obviously won the batting title at 394. Bagwell was second at 368. He was batting 368 as a power hitter. At the he finished the season with 38 home runs. Oh no, sorry, sorry. 39 home runs in 116 RBIs while batting 368 with a 451 on base and a 750 slugging. It's like a mix between Albert Pujols and Barry Bonds. Like, what in the actual hell? A 750 slugging percentage? He had a 1201 OPS. Like, this is crazy. And he had 39 home runs. So here's the thing. Like, if you look at, like, Matt Williams, he was only batting 267 with a 319 on base. So, like, he, you know, he struck, Matt definitely struck out more. Not a ton more, probably. Matt had 87 strikeouts compared to Jeff's 65. But with the higher batting average, it's like, well, you look at that and you're like, well, Jeff Bagwell can hit a baseball better than Matt Williams, right? If I look at just batting average, that's what batting average means. Who can hit the damn ball better? And it's like, he was only four home runs behind. But what's crazy about Bagwell is sort of like Tony Gwynn in 1994, Jeff Bagwell was getting hotter as the season went on, right? So with the all-star break, Jeff Bagwell only had 27 home runs where guys like Junior Griffey and like Matt Williams, they had like 32 and 33 home runs at the break or something. So Bagwell wasn't even to 30, but so at the at the All-Star break, Bagwell was batting 348. The second half of the season, he hit 12 homers in 26 games and was batting 432. <laughs> like Jesus, man. And what's crazy is in July, July, hot ass July, he batted 409. And then through nine games in August, he was batting 387. He had a 500 on base percentage. He was hitting very efficiently, taking his walks in a good eye with an astronomically high batting average and a, a pretty low strikeout rate, which is crazy. He was hitting three. Oh, hold on. I've got these numbers too, man. He Home and away, he was about hitting the same, 373 to 362. He was batting 344 off righties and 421 off lefties. So this was a guy that could absolutely bash baseballs home, away, against lefties, against righties, and was getting hotter in the second half with such this high, high batting average, which is crazy. And so that season, like when you talk about like the home run race, like I had never looked at Jeff Bagwell's MVP season until like a couple weeks ago. And then I noticed like, Oh, damn, and that was in 1994. Like, that was the deal. And this was, like, a pretty decent, 
like Bagwell was obviously only 26 years old, but this season by far and away was sort of like Matt Williams season. It was like by far his best season with batting average and slugging like the most. He saw Jeff Bagwell slug six, six fifteen in 2000 at the height, height of like the steroid era, but this was like in 1994. Now, I don't know if Bagwell was on stuff or not, but it's a lot more it's a lot more, it means a lot more to hit this many home runs in 94 than it did in 2000 because everybody was hitting monster numbers of home runs in 2000. Like Luis Gonzalez hit like 58 homers in 01, right? So shit, man, like that's pretty cool. But like his 39 in 1994 was a pretty big deal and it was a peak season for him. Like he must have figured something out. Like the year before he batted 320 through 142 games, had 20 home runs. In 1995, he was back down to batting 290 batted 315 in 1996, and went back down to 286. So this season, it's almost like Bagwell had figured something out, but the pitchers didn't know what the fuck was going on yet, so he was just bashing balls. So when you're in that situation where like you've made an adjustment, but a pitcher hasn't, your, your numbers are going to skyrocket, and that seems like that's what was going on with Bagwell, right? Because that happens to a lot of hitters. Like The Cubs have a guy named Ian Happ who the first two years of his career were really good. And then since then, he's been like a low 200, like 190 hitter this season because pitchers have just figured him out. What makes a really good major league hitter is the ability to adjust as pitchers figure you out, right? Because there's so many rookies, you know, one or two year guys that come up in the league and, you know, bust the seams off the baseball. And then they just sort of fade away because pitchers have figured them out. So they're not a great hitter and they can't make those adjustments, right? But your hitters that have longevity in the league, it's because they can adjust. They're truly, truly out of this world amazing hitters, right? And Jeff Bagwell was that throughout his career. Jeff Bagwell was always able to adjust. He had a 297 lifetime batting average, but this 368 batting average stands out like a sore thumb for Jeff Bagwell because he was in that window to where he was ahead of the pitchers being able to adjust to him, and he was fucking feasting while getting hot in the second half. Like Matt Williams, uh, 43 home runs, I think were right at a pace for 61. But Bagwell was getting hot. Bagwell was like 1998 Sammy Sosa, who had like a slow start or slower start and then just took off. And so when I look at Bagwell in 94, I'm like, that's the guy right there. High batting average and high slugging. Like he was the power version of Tony Gwynn. He was just hitting everything and seeing the ball really well at an exceptional career peak for him. All right, well, that is the end of the podcast. This was one of my longer solo podcasts, so if you hung out with me this whole time, thank you so much. And again, I just want to end the podcast by saying thanks. You know, Thank you so much for listening, for following the Instagram page. It means a lot. And when I tell you that I have so much fun you know, reading the comments and leaving comments and uploading like the surveys on my stories and stuff like that, I really should say on our stories because the page wasn't built by me. It was built by everybody that follows it, and it means the world. And it's just a blast, you know, like I said, especially having a 19-month-old start my family. And because I think baseball and family, you know, together is one of the most wonderful things ever. So thanks for tuning in. And until next time, we will catch you later. All right, guys. Bye.